Welcome to the Body Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Kiara. You can expect new episodes each Wednesday that are educational, inspiring, and honest surrounding various women's health topics, spirituality, and so much more. The Body Wisdom Podcast was brought to life by integrating the physical and emotional body to deepen one's healing journey. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. And welcome to another episode of the Body Wisdom Podcast. I'm so excited for today's episode with my friend Kimber. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for coming on. I'm so excited for our listeners to get to know you and your story and what you're here to share. Um, So I guess before we get started, for anyone who's not familiar with you and your work, would you mind just by starting off with like a little bit of background and how you landed in the space? Sure. Yeah. So I am a holistic nutritionist. Um, Sometimes I will refer to myself as a functional nutritionist because I have some functional training and I tend to take that approach to nutrition. Um, I'm also a women's health coach. And so I've been in the last three or four years building a business as a nutrition consultant and health coach. In the last two years, I started working specifically with women and um, launched an ebook about the importance of eating animals for women's mental and behavioral health, and then launched a women's health course um, in the last year and a half. And so I think definitely like in the last year and a half, I've really ramped it up with getting to know women's bodies, getting to know like the large macro level issues that women are facing when it comes to their health and um, something that I feel really passionate about. And I feel like it's an underrepresented area of health, women, just like what, what, you know, what happens to women's bodies and in this culture specifically. And so, yeah, it's something that I feel really excited to talk about. And I have been told also, I'm like very, very cerebral and intellectual. And so I kind of bring that like more masculine, intellectual, critical thinking uh, perspective to the area of, to the, the field of women's health and, and nutrition. I love that because we need that for sure. Sometimes it's just like yeah. that. Oh, Very flowy. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have to get into that too. Like that's something that I work on on a regular basis to not be such, you know, such a heady woman. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's a lot of room for growth for women in, um, understanding what differentiates them from men and that's something that I feel very strongly about that I feel is not is lacking in this culture yeah it was even like taboo so in mm-hmm. some way is this somehow connected to your story and how like you grew up and any health struggles that you faced yeah definitely I um yeah, so I had kind of an unconventional upbringing. My parents uh, were in some a religious group and uh, never officially married. And we were all like unassisted. I'm in the middle of five children and we're all unassisted home births. Didn't see doctors, unschooled. And my parents had kind of a rocky relationship. And so when I was about eight, my mom left and my dad raised us. And my mom w- was in and out, which ties into my attachment stuff we can talk about. 
Um, but my mom was in and out and then, you know, basically my dad raised us. And so it was a man raising four women and one boy. And my dad's very permissive and very um, effeminate himself, very emotional. He's a writer. He's very like creative type. And so there was a lot of like lack of structure, lack of authority, um, lack of a strong patriarch in the household. Mm -hmm. And so I see a lot of my issues of just like, you know, being really strong-willed, kind of running my own life, not feeling like I can release, release control, uh, not really understanding my body as a female, that mm. those themes tended to play out in my life. And so I was never like inherently masculine in the sense that like I wanted to be a guy or people would just define me necessarily, like describe me as masculine, but energetically looking back, I was always very heady and very kind of disconnected from what it meant to be a woman. Like no one, I had no one there to tell me what, what it means to have a woman's body, what it means to be a girl, uh, what it means to go through menarche and to, you know, have sexual desires and how to care for yourself. And so, and then I also like my first, my career background and first uh, stint in college was early child development and infant care. And so I also have like some biases because I have worked in a lot of female centric industries and I've never really felt like um, men were oppressing me or like I needed to compete with men or so I've kind of gone through life feeling like I've been doing these very feminine jobs but also not really understanding my personal role in it since I didn't really have a, like a strong uh, foundation for understanding myself as a woman if that makes sense it does it yeah. does so there's so, some things that I did sorry go ahead no 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 go ahead I want you to finish your sentence I was I was just going to say, there's some things that I did not participate in, which I feel really grateful for. Like I never took hormonal birth control. Um, I was never really into casual sex or like, there's just certain things that in this culture that are becoming more uh, mm -hmm. for women signs of liberation that I don't actually agree with. And I just never really participated in those things. Uh, however, I did, even as a health oriented woman working in birth work, I was also a postpartum doula for many years. I still didn't really understand my own cycle. I didn't really understand myself as a woman. I kind of thought of like tracking ovulation and fertility as just this thing that my like kind of more crunchy, effeminate friends in the Bay Area would do, or or if you're like intentionally trying to get pregnant. And so it wasn't even until my early 30s, and especially, especially in the last two years when I started working with women, that I started to realize how many aspects of my own womanhood and femininity had never really been developed. Mm -hmm. and it's like a cultural problem I think it's a cultural problem but I just happen to have this kind of like backstory of being raised by a man to um make it more personal for me I guess mm -hmm. yeah so how have you started to I mean yes through your own work you started to discover these parts of yourself but I guess how are you bringing the feminine more into practice on a day-to-day -day basis today so that it feels more like integrated with the masculine? Yeah. Uh, well, practicing feeling, I guess, just like allowing myself. I have, despite being really heady, I have a lot of big feelings and I feel things really intensely and um, allowing myself, like actually practicing feeling, sitting with my feelings dancing, doing different forms of movement, um, doing just embodiment practices. So I do a lot of every day I do different dances and, um, like on my own, I used to be, I used to be part of a larger community of, um, like ecstatic dance. If you've ever heard of that, 
And I'm really excited to like, because I'm going to be moving back to the Bay Area in a month and a half to be back in that community again, to have kind of like a larger group of people that do that. Um, but right now it's mostly kind of just like individual work, uh, somatic therapy that I do. And um, one of my favorite things actually is to go to the beach. Like I grew up on the beach, I grew up surfing and where I'm currently living, we have this little private nude beach that I've been going to since I was a teenager. And that's kind of, that's one of my like sacred healing places where I can go and be naked and like swim in the ocean naked and lay out and get my breast tan. And I'm going to have a hard time moving away from that for sure. <laughs> come back to that. But yeah, so like spending a lot of time in, in my body, like I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time naked, like when I'm, you know, doing work that doesn't require people see me, <laughs> I'm not wearing very much clothing. That's been something that has been a big part of my healing journey is just being naked. Uh, you know, I grew up again, like very much in my head, never overweight, but had an eating disorder and body dysmorphia. So I would disassociate a lot, go into my intellect. And so now um, I use just like ha having access to my body, anchoring in my body, wearing less clothing, being able to like feel myself and look at myself in the mirror. And then with certain friends that I feel safe with, you know, to do that as well. Um, that's a big part of me, you know, reconnecting and reclaiming my body as a woman. Mm. So you name all of these things and I'm curious, was it easy to start doing these things, especially as someone who spends a lot of, or spent a lot of time in her head? Was it just mm. easy to just be in your body? I think it's been a process. Mm. I don't think it was super easy. I look back at like my late teens and my early twenties and I had a lot of anxiety. This is actually part of my story too, was I was vegan for the first five years of my twenties and I was doing a lot of meditation. I was actually trying to bypass the entire experience of having a body. So I went on a lot of silent retreats and, mm -hmm. you know, had like a Buddhist teacher and a Buddhist community in San Francisco. And my health deteriorated so much on a vegan diet that sitting and meditating became really difficult. Mm -hmm. And so, and just having the amount of anxiety that I would have from being malnourished basically. Mm -hmm. And so it was, I think the second half of my twenties, when I started reintroducing animal foods, which really like grounded me and gave me my period back, slowed me down, stabilized my blood sugar. That actually made me, uh, it made it easier for me to stick around in my body because I do believe a lot of us disassociate because we don't, there's something, there's something missing in our nervous system, like a nutrient piece or, you know, something that will allow us to feel safe staying in our bodies. And so that was definitely a part of it. And then um, the ecstatic dance and contact improv, if you've heard of that. I haven't. What is highly that? recommend looking that up. So I, a few people have asked me recently what it is, and I'm just trying to think of how to describe it. So it's a it's an international community and it kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of ecstatic dance. Like you can see it, you'll see a lot of people who are in the ecstatic dance community also do contact improv. And it's a way of moving, it's a movement practice that involves other people. So it's a lot of like learning to lead and follow, touching in like very specific ways. Um, you can do it individually with one person, you can do it in groups. And so I used to be part of that community in the Bay Area and there would just be like contact parties where everyone is just um, practicing touching each other. It was a very, very like tactile, physical community where you start to learn boundaries. Um, you have to learn how to, to, to get into your body in order to follow and to lead. 
and just to kind of like know where you're at and whether you want to be touched by a particular person. And so that taught me a lot about like trusting myself, like being able to be centered and trusting myself and knowing that I can, I can follow because I have a really hard time following, like relinquishing control. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so those, I think the second half of my twenties, uh, and then, you know, the first few years of my thirties really helped me like solidify myself in my body and, um, make peace with food and feel, I think for the first time, what it means to have a woman's body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you said that because I know for myself, whenever, like I share something on social media about being in your body or like dancing even, or meditating or whatever it is. And with my client work, a lot of the women I see don't see it as so easy to get in their bodies and and stay in their bodies, right. To have this embodied feeling. And I also want to say like, it's not their fault. Like And we can also take responsibility um, because trauma, when trauma happens, there's this disembodiment that takes place. And so, I don't know. I love that you said that it's a process because it is, it's like everything else. It's a process. It's a practice. It's a, it's a titration as well. It's not going from zero to 100. Um, there's this saying in somatic healing that, that goes like trauma moves fast. So healing must be slow. Mm. And I love that so much because mm-hmm. yeah, even when we're like doing all of the protocols and doing all of the things like in the alternative health space, um, I see it the same way. I'm like, usually someone, and this was me too, like who, it's like, give me this, give me that, give me that. And I want to do this. I got to do that. And then it's like, almost like you're running out of breath. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just can so relate. And I didn't realize that there was just so much underneath there that hadn't been felt yet. Mm-hmm. And so I love how you brought the feeling into the equation because feeling your feelings, it sounds so easy and simple, but gosh, like so many of us, myself included, don't or I, I used to feel this way, don't know how, how to even go about doing that, where to start feeling mm-hmm. your feelings. So I love that you brought that up. Um, and I want to connect the dots back to, so would you say like your trauma, if you want to call it trauma, I know trauma is also like this, this word that has been almost overused recently, yeah. but also like not to dismiss anyone who's had trauma. Trauma is not in the event in it, in it of itself, but it's mm-hmm. the lack of an empathic witness or basically how it left your system. Yeah. Um, but how did that impact your health and relationships moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, like I, um, I'm currently doing, I'm working with my third, I did somatic experiencing with two different practitioners in my twenties. And then now I'm working with my third and as I'm 36. So as someone in her like late third, mid thirties, that's more developed and more intentional with her life. It's profound how much is coming up. Cause I'm, I think I'm more available for the work. And so I can look back now and see how many patterns, how much patterns I had from really early on that are showing up in these subtle or not so subtle ways. And so my mother, um, leaving, and this is, again, I think this is pretty common when you have a parent, especially a mother figure 
uh, that abandons you or that leaves that feeling of that severing that like mother hunger yeah. mm-hmm. can so deep it can run so deep and so for me um I would have like really big really big feelings like I would like take up a whole room with my feelings when I was a child like have tantrums you know and no one would come because my parents were over cat you know where they just had too much on their plate and my mom wasn't available so then no one would come so what I would do is I would cry it out and make a big scene and then I would eventually bring myself back down and like go out and apologize like I would take care of myself in a way which obviously as you're a child you you can't really do that so there's like dissociation that happens and internalization internalizing the, the experience and stuff and so throughout my life I've noticed that that shows up in different ways and so when I was a teenager it showed up as like self self-destructive behavior you know like I would drink or party or um uh, I was bulimic for several years and so kind of like having these really big feelings and not having the resources to name them or even fully feel them. So going up into my head and thinking and then doing something, reaching for something external to take the pressure off, to like allow myself to feel some relief from having those big feelings. Right. And so, um, and the way that showed up in my like evolving relationship patterns as an adult is anxious, very anxious attachment style. So getting involved having a pattern of getting involved with men that kind of mimic some of the patterns of my mother. So like avoidance and then getting those, those wounds triggered, having these like really big outsized feelings. So getting really loud in some way, whether that's, you know, writing a long text or whatever. And then um, when they can't meet me, cause they don't have the skills to meet that uh, kind of like self soothing, if you can, or more just like suppressing. And then, um, uh, so eventually like having these like building, nothing's really fully resolved. And um, that that can be, that can create a lot of problems in your intimate relationships, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over the years, like I have noticed that through the somatic experiencing, through the embodiment work, I've gotten a lot better at feeling my feelings and naming them. And um, some of the things that, you know, you learn in somatic experiencing that you take with you, which is just profound work is um shaking moving around like I'm really really big on eye contact so when I'm connecting with someone I'm I look in their eyes a lot like I anchor and I notice that people that's one of the reasons that people come to me because they feel very seen and I'm very present with them and that's a skill that I developed through being with discomfort through being with really big feelings Mm. and kind of like riding those nervous system waves Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, so now I'm at this place where uh, I can see that my nervous system, although I'm still healing and I can actually see the improvements and the security that has been developed, I can still see that my nervous system is sensitive from my early childhood in a way that makes my choice of partners very uh, important. Mm. And so choosing someone that has some kind of avoidance patterns that they're not working on and they're not aware of can really like hijack my nervous system, even after all that work. So it's a really interesting thing to notice now as an adult, like how, even, even though we're doing, even if we do healing work and we do work towards security and resolution, and there's certain imprints that we can have when we're younger that can stay with us, that can actually dictate who becomes our medicine and who becomes our poison. And so that's definitely like, that's kind of where my lesson is right now with relationships, just like being really intentional with who I choose to let in. Um, And intentional relationships are absolutely essential for me at this point. Mm. 
That's big. And relationships make up, I can't remember. There was like this, this percentage or like this scale of like how important relationships are when it comes to like our health. Um, I know for me, speaking for myself, when what really led me to this space was my almost 10 year relationship, um, where I had an anxious attachment style and, you know, Mm -hmm. we could go into like childhood and everything and gosh, like the symptoms that manifested from being in that chronic state of fight or flight for almost 10 years, um, that is really what kind of forced me into this space and and led me to dig deeper into my symptoms. And that's kind of like why I'm so passionate about intertwining somatics and nutrition together, because both are as equally important for the the nervous system. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that just resonates so, so big. So I love that for you and that you're choosing intentional relationships, whether it be romantic or non-romantic. Yeah. I'm assuming everything. Um, it makes such a big difference in the state of our health. And sometimes like, that's not something I knew right off of the bat, right. That's not something that I was taught growing up, but, um, sometimes that's just kind of like the lesson that is needed to be learned at some point in our lives. Um, So with your anxious attachment style, and it's, so is that something that you, you still, you still resonate with that today? Yes. And it, it varies depending on who I'm with. Cause I've had secure partners that I'm still best friends with, you know, that are like people that I still confide in and have intimate relationship with. Mm -hmm. Um, it, so it really does. I've done enough work and I'm continuing to do work. Like right now I'm doing parts work with my um, love she's doing the the woman that I'm currently working with. She's wonderful. Um, I've only had a few sessions and I feel like I've been broken open and she does. Um, I wish I I knew the name of it. It's a, it's a mixture of attachment therapy and somatic experiencing. Mm. She also does parts work. That's interesting. Yeah. It's just, it's the, so far it's been the most powerful. I, I, and again, I'm so intellectual that I can go in my head and just like talk and talk and talk and very articulate. And that doesn't really get in there, you know, and like help you see what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the attachment stuff, it's tricky because you have to be very cautious. You have to be very conscious of signals of insecure attack, like avoidance. I think if you're someone who has a more atta- anxious long-term pattern, it's important to be aware of of signals of avoidance early on. And I find that sometimes I'm not still, and that can be difficult because if you attach yourself to someone who has unconscious, it's, I mean, you know, patterns in in and of themselves are not, they're not a sign that you shouldn't be in a relationship with someone. It's more of, are they conscious and are they being worked on? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately with, uh, with strong avoidance patterns, they're less likely to be aware of them because that's the nature of avoidance. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I have found that regardless of all of the work that I've done, if I get involved with someone and we can talk about like the role that sex plays in that, because that's a really fun topic. Um, if I get involved with someone and we get really physically intimate, I can miss those signals of their avoidance. And I require a lot of depth and a lot of like emotional, um, intimacy intimacy and safety like that's really really important to me Mm. and so without that like my anxious stuff will get triggered 
for sure. And I know that, like I tell, I tell, I tell, you know, new partners that too. Like I'm very much aware of it. And, but it's more a matter of if someone else isn't really versed in what that actually means, they're just not going to have the skills to meet you when you get triggered. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I find it interesting that, um, anxious attachment styles tend to just somehow find themselves in relationship with avoidant partners. I mean, that was me. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, they didn't, it, it was like this constant clashing because I was like, uh, desperately asking for something that could never ever be met because this person had this ta- attachment style. And yeah. so that led to this tumultuous relationship that was not healthy in any sense. And so I'm curious, um, yeah, how did sex like play a role in all that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do think, I do believe that there is uh, room for change and r- room for growth. I think that attachment styles are a spectrum. They're not really like a box that we can b- be put in. And uh, I have a lot of faith in, in, in gro- growth, even if it's like s- slightly naive. Um, so I would say that sex triggers so many things for so many of us. And it's such a deep unconscious way of bonding because you're tapping into all the stuff that's stored in your body and you're sharing that. And a lot of it is actually unconscious. And so, um, it can be, uh, and especially, I also think that there's biological differences between men and women that are kind of downplayed these days. So we have this culture where we want men and women to be equal and we confuse equal with sameness. And although I do think that casual sex can, and, and unconscious, unintentional sex can harm anyone. I also think that it harms women more than it harms men. And so I think that a lot of women, a lot of women have anxious attachment styles they're not fully aware of. And when they participate in unintentional or casual sex or unsafe sex in the sense of like nervous system safety, then um, they run the risk of increasing their level of anxiety and their attachment, triggering their attachment wounds in a way that's not helpful. And so I found that to be the case with myself. And I learned early on, like, especially in that second half of my twenties, when I was doing more like physical, uh, you know, doing dance and contact improv, going to Burning Man, I was in several open relationships and um, learned so much about my boundaries and about intimacy and the importance of communication and safety. And I just learned that sex is such a seriously profound portal into our subconscious that it's not something that I can just do with anyone. And so I've become much more serious about who I sleep with and like the standards for what kind of sex is enjoyable for me has gone consistently up. And part of that, I think, is my growing awareness of my nervous system reactions and this attachment, our attachment systems that are very, very real. And I think that some people attach more deeply or intensely than others. Like some people just have more, some people are more kinesthetic, some people are more physical, I'm incredibly physical. And so I attach really, I lean into attachment and I attach, attach really intensely and pretty quickly too. And so, because I know that about myself, I'm super mindful of who I choose to sleep with. Mm-hmm. And, um, that doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes though. And so definitely like having, being like, a, and I'm also a very, very sexual person. Like I really enjoy sex. So it's a very interesting mixture of like really enjoying sex and, and, um, having like this profound relief of getting out of her head, getting into her body to be able to enjoy her body and connect in this way. And also knowing that there's like, you need to be, there's a greater level of responsibility for who you do that with. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so that's something that I've been working on and have been experiencing over the last few years. And 
uh, my last relationship actually, uh, which was probably one of the most like profound relationships I've ever had as far as like nervous system reactions and, and attachment stuff that really, that taught me so much. Um, if you would, if you're open to, to hearing about. Oh yeah, please. A little bit about that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's, I mean, it's kind of personal, but it's also, I just, again, it's like, there's just so many lessons there. Um, mm-hmm. so my last relationship only lasted about four months and we met online and it was long distance. Um, but it was like immediately very, very physical. Like we had a lot of chemistry. We both agreed that we wanted a very physical relationship. He took on the role of my dominant and I took on the role of a sub, which is like something that I've been wanting for years. Um, and so there's a lot, I don't know if you know much about those kinds of dynamics, but not really. No. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ideas about it. And then there's a lot of, there's so many different ways that it can play out. It's basically like a, a role playing within the relationship where you take on um, a particular energetic um, role. And so the dominant has more, and again, like this is very personal. So everyone can have, people can have different flavors of this dynamic. Um, there's a lot of people who do it in a very casual way. And that was not me from the beginning, but it's basically like you're relinquishing a certain level of control to someone else and you're surrendering. And so the way that I was first kind of introduced to the dom sub dynamic, even though it's part of like BDSM, I actually got the first conception of it and experience of it through David Data's work. If you're familiar with him. Yes. Yeah. So he's obviously, he's not like a BDSM guy, but he, he does talk a lot about the sexual polarity and the masculine and the feminine. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's a lot of overlap between like a dominant who's in, in his masculine and a feminine who's in her fem- woman who's in her feminine and she's surrendering. Mm-hmm. And so, so me and my partner kind of took on those roles and talked a lot about the energetics and the emotional and um, again, like lots of trust and and we were long distance and uh, he made a lot of mistakes. I mean, we both made a lot of mistakes, but I think um, he was not honest. And like, again, when you're long distance, you have four hours between each other. And so he was, he had sex with other people and, and kept it for me. And, um, and also he's a sober, sober alcoholic. And so he was, and he was drinking mm-hmm. and so, so these are things that like really violate, would violate trust in like a normal relationship, um, quote unquote normal. But like, because we had this really strong dynamic that like was very almost like emotional and body centered, it felt almost like a spiritual calling for me to surrender and to trust this person and to like relinquish control. And we're talking like physical control too. So when we were together, he's much bigger than me and he had physical control over me. Like, you know, he would tie me up. Um, he would lead me, it's hard to explain without painting a particular picture in someone's mind of what that means, but it was, it wasn't a performance. It was very authentic. It was very, um, it was a dance and, um, and we fell in love really quickly. And so we were planning on like moving in together when my lease was up, which, you know, was at the beginning of July. So that would have been, that would have given us an extra six months of seeing each other afar. And he, as soon as we started to plan for that, he, um, kind of freaked out and pulled back and broke up with me. Mm. and um yeah so January February were just like really difficult months um emotionally for me and we stayed in touch and um over the months and then it became clear to me that he was avoidant like more and more because he did not show up as avoidant in the the four months that we were dating Mm. and so like he he showed up as very secure and he even told me that he you know based on his like quiz that he had taken or something which that he was secure um 
but now it's really clear that he's like fearful avoidant. And so what started to happen as we continued to stay in communication, it became more and more clear how like toxic it was for my nervous system to be in communication with him because I still had this like desire to surrender to him, but that safety in that container was no longer there. And so it was like, I, I didn't really know my role. I didn't know how to interact with him. He would get really sexual really quickly because that was like a source of bonding for us when we were like in this safe love space. But like that, and so that would like reel me in and we would have phone sex. And then I would feel really confused and like emotionally in pain afterwards. And um, yeah, so I learned so much about like how much goes on in your body when you have a physical relationship with someone that um, completely bypasses your intellectual like your reason you know and I like pride myself on being pretty good at critical thinking and being able to rationalize and do you know know what the logical thing to do is but when you have those patterns running in your body um th that's way stronger than anything that you could possibly think oh absolutely yeah, yeah. the yeah. body knows and so I'm curious how you like I don't know just coped with that after the breakup like after everything yeah. that happened, having had that anxious attachment style, how did you soothe? How did you heal from that? I cried a lot. Like I was like a little girl. I, I would like, I would go to the beach and I would cry. I would like be with girlfriends and I would cry. That was like a large part of what I did was I just like allowed myself to like fully feel those like deep, dark, ugly emotions. And, um, and I worked, like I put myself into my business and I just spent a lot of time with other women like for the first time. And I have had, you know, like some deep female relationships over the years, but that was the first time in this last like seven months that I've really leaned into sisterhood mm. online with like colleagues and just women that I work with and clients, but also like the women in my life, like they've became my anchor. And that was just, that was so beautiful for the first time realizing that like women, that's also another aspect of, of, I think the growth of my business is, um, growing up, having been raised by a man, I've always empathized with men. Like I've, I've never been one of those like men, man hating feminists or like, I've always empathized with men and just kind of understood, wanted to understand more of their process and their behaviors. And, um, and I've always felt a little bit less empathetic towards women. Mm -hmm. And so in the last few years, and especially this last like eight months, I have just been like broken open to women and to like what they go through and what they feel and their sensitivities and both on like an individual and also like on a, a macro level. And so that allowed me to give myself empathy mm. for what I was going through. And I talked to a lot of women. I mean, women talk, that's like what we do with each other. Right. And so I can find yeah. a lot of women over, you know, what happened with Ryan, like a lot of women know about him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thanks for reflecting that back to me because I just realized I would empathize with men so much almost. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I wonder if I was almost to a fault. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but I never did that with women. I was always like best friends with, with the guys in high school and had, very few like female friendships, even the ones I did have were like catty and, you know, we were talking behind each other's backs. So it wasn't this like solid, like female friendship. Like I, I got you no matter what, like I'm here for you and there's trust, 
but there was more like betrayal and lies and and all of that and so sis- the sisterhood wound was really really deep for me too and um it hasn't been until recently that I've really started to notice the shifts that are happening in my body because I'm leaning more into sisterhood um mm-hmm. than I ever have before just like energetically my body just feels different and lighter and I make jokes and I receive jokes well or I don't know like I feel more comfortable in my body and like all these little things that I didn't have before because sisters weren't there and sisters were always something I wanted biologically and I believe you have is that what you had like three sisters three sisters yeah that's amazing are you do you find them close as well um yeah we're close I have a pretty my family is has a lot of issues like a lot of drug use and and so my family we love each other we just don't have like a strong unit we're all kind of like off on our own figuring ourselves out and then we come together occasionally and so I have you know we text each other every once in a while but we um we're not as close as I would like us to be for sure Mm -hmm. and um yeah the, the 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 sisterhood wound is it's such a real thing in this culture and modern society. And um, last summer, I um, I had a medicine trip with LSD, and um, and I went into my sister wound and ended up having like this profound experience of grieving um, what women have gone through throughout history. I'm like getting goosebumps. Oh my gosh. Yeah, really profound. Like I still can have flashes of it if I'm like driving in my car and some really like strong feminine, like Tori Amos or Fiona, something comes on and I'll just like, I'll start crying again, feeling this, I had this like deep, deep um, uh, embodied feeling of like women throughout history, their struggles and like how many women are, how many people are here today because a woman at some point in their lineage was raped and oh emotion yeah and just like I felt that for the first time of just like what it means to be a woman to have a woman's body to have like to feel all of the um way, the ways that we're weak that we feel unsafe um that we feel the need to you know because I do believe there's a such thing as like toxic femininity like everyone fixates on toxic masculinity but like there is this toxic element of the, of a woman or of the feminine that's like, you know, um, needing to manipulate with like our sexual energy, um, needing to like put each other down, uh, gossip. And so just like all of that happening in women, like reverting to that because we don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was, prof- it shifted things immensely for me, like in the way that I feel towards women. And, and I feel like since then my business has, has um, grown substantially, like you know, my income has grown substantially. My, the women that reach out to me and want to collaborate with me and like form a sisterhood around work has been beautiful, has been just, something that I didn't even have to try hard for. It just kind of showed up in my lap. Mm. And I, part of that is this, this like healing that I've done with myself and, yeah. and forgiving myself and forgiving my mom for, you know, the ways that she just did not have it. She did. She also was a product of this culture and never really had her own life. You know, she started having children when she was 18 Mm. and my dad was much older and she didn't really know what she was doing. And so she gave her entire life to having children and then just, you know, kind of lost, you know, kind of like had a, had a, had a um, a experience in her thirties where she was like, I can't do it anymore. You know, and that's Mm -hmm. when she 
left, but she has to live with that for the rest of her life. The fact that she left her children, that's a huge, huge burden to carry. So you haven't spoken to her since? Oh no, she's in, no, she's now we have a relationship for sure. Oh, you do? Oh yeah. Yeah. She, and I think also it's interesting just to note that like the healing work that you do is for everyone in your life. Like it's not just for you. And of all my siblings, I have the closest relationship with her because I have just because of the work that I've done and my ability to um, forgive her and, you know, have compassion for what she was going through, empathize with who she was and who she is and to actually, and to have her in my life and give her the opportunity to, to be my mother again. Mm. And that's something that like, not all my siblings have, you know, have been open to. Do you think that's, um, allowed for any shifts to take place in the anxious attachment style like having your mom back in your life like did that anything happen from that yeah I think so yeah I definitely think so I think that it's still there partly because my mom has a lot of healing work that she may never do and so we do have boundaries you know like there is elements of avoidance there with her Mm. that you know that's just unfortunately like not everyone gets the opportunity to do their healing work in their lifetime. And so that's kind of how I feel with her, but she definitely like makes an effort and, you know, is doing her best, you know, with the skill set that she has. I think the mother wound is such a deep one for so many people. Mm-hmm. And it's a driving force in a lot of addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is something that I look at a lot and like work on and I can actually talk to her about it. Like we have that level of honesty with each other. Um, that my siblings don't really have. It's one of those things where you, if you don't forgive someone for the things they've done, it's going to be really hard to even talk to them about the things they've done because the place that you're coming from is so, it's a place, place of pain. So you're just like giving them your pain over and over. Yeah, if that makes sense. It does. So then then you just have a very superficial relationship with the person because you can't actually like, you're you're totally having to avoid, consistently avoid yeah. the thing you need to confront. I love that you're bringing up the mother wound because um, this was something that I thought I didn't have. And I apologize if you guys, can you hear my dogs in the background? Cause they're like right. going, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> I'm glad. Cause they're like going crazy. Um, I always thought I had this deep father wound, which I think is definitely prominent, but the person who I became most anxious without was my mother when she wasn't there as a, but the thing is she was always there. She was always, always, always there. She was my, my safety, um, never wanted to leave her side, but if she left for a second, like, mm-hmm. I'd be like, no. And so with or without a mother, I think someone can still have a mother wound. Right. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> and like, yeah. even, yeah, I guess, because it's the person that brought you into the world. I mean, I guess it depends on if you, when you say with or without a mother, like you didn't have them at all, like they were not there from birth on or, but it's that person that brought you into the world that you, um, and this is, again, this work, this is such fascinating topic because I studied early child development and infant development. So like I, and I worked for over a decade with infants, newborns and small children. So I got to see attachment work was like a big part of that. And I got to see in real time, like, what happens to babies when they're not looked at enough, like, like their nervous system reactions to not being held or to being held and how they communicate their needs. And so it could be something subtle. You could have a mother that's there and she just doesn't look at you enough. She's not big on eye contact or 
she's just not a physical person for some reason, like, because yeah. she, her mother wasn't physical. And I don't want it to like come off as an alarm alarmism where I'm saying, oh, you use so many ways you can fuck your kid up. But like, <laughs> but like, if you're familiar, are you familiar with Gabor Mate's work? Yes. Oh, I love him so much. So he talks him. a lot about this. Like it's trauma is something that, um, is it's an easy thing for a small human that's developing out outside of the womb to to experience subtle traumas that can impact the way you attach yeah and the mother the mother is just that's the the human that you're you came into this world with and so you're naturally going to have this unique relationship to your mother mm-hmm. even if she's not around you're still going to have that that hunger Mm-hmm. for her presence for her body you like your nervous system cannot regulate itself without your mother's body or your care provider's body and so you can't you're an extension of whoever it is that's caring for you yeah yeah and, and I think for her and just my family as a whole there was just like this lack of presence like I had them there and on the outside it looked like this perfect family but mm-hmm. on the inside there was just so much depth lacking Mm-hmm. and intimacy with one another and so that's, that's something that you mentioned earlier like emotional intimacy and safety like that's something I'm so big on in every single relationship I carry today because mm-hmm. I just felt like that wasn't something that I had as a child and so I want that to be very different um in my community today and with my family in the future mm-hmm. so yeah wow wow where to go from here? I feel like there's so much that we covered already. Um, I guess I want to kind of bring it back to like, how is everything that we're talking about? Trauma, sex, relationships, attachment styles. Why is this so important for women's health? Mm. Yeah. Well, women are um, very social creatures. And so humans in general are, but women specifically, like historically, we've been, we've worked together. We've, you know, we were the communicators, we're the nurturers, we're the care providers. Um, so that, I think that's a deep need that a lot of us have that's like deeply seated in us that we forget we need. And obviously women will need that. Individuals will need that to varying degrees, but it's not something that we, most of us were raised around in our nuclear families. And like you were saying, like you kind of had these like kind of toxic unconscious relationships with women. A lot of women have that. Like a lot of women have relationships that are based on like partying or kind of competing with each other or um, vanity. Um, And so for that reason, there's like a deep need there that's not being met. Mm -hmm. And then biologically women are more sensitive to attachment because we are more vulnerable to if our mate leaves and we're left alone with our baby. Like there's a, there's a real need there for our mates to stick around and for, you know, just attachment in general, because we have to attach to our babies to care for them, to like keep them alive. And so I just think that there's so much that happens in our bodies biochemically, like neurochemically, that makes us more sensitive and vulnerable to um, attachment wounds, but also like uh, um, insecure relationships. And we're living in a time right now that is really unique in the sense that like women have elevated our, we've elevated ourselves to these these levels where we're um outpacing men in a lot of ways and we're also competing with men in a lot of ways and for that reason like it's this is a very fascinating topic like female hypergamy i don't know if you've heard of that before i haven't yeah so uh mating behaviors are so fascinating so women okay mate, women mate up and across in the mating hierarchy men date down and across and that means like mating hierarchy in a sense of like 
um, how much power does someone have? How much competency does someone have? Like how attractive, how attractive for mating someone is. And so for that reason, as women continue to go up um, in competency and can do run their own lives, there's less and less viable mates that they have that they would choose from. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing a whole slew of women that are going for a very small proportion of men at the top. And for that reason, there's a lot of um, women that are not in stable, secure relationships because men have more options and they're less likely to commit. So right now we have a lot of women that are un, like unclear around how to find, how to create safety and security within a relationship because it's not something like casual, casual sex and non-commitment relationships are like an, at an all-time high. Mm. And they're usually like, like for instance, polyamory, so it's like a soapbox I could stand on and talk about a lot. Like, I think there's a lot of problems with it. I think there's a, there's beautiful elements of it and it works for some people, but it's trending right now, especially in like more liberal areas, like where I live in California. And the vast majority of it is, is driven by men. Mm. And so, and I think that a lot of it is not because like men are more evolved and suddenly they can handle being in a really deep committed relationship with more than one person. I think it's because we have more options and committing is less appealing nowadays. And so commitment doesn't necessarily have to mean like it has looked throughout history. Like we know we commit to this very kind of rigid monogamous structure um, for long-term, but I do think that like the emotional and like the, the nervous system piece and that that's, that's contingent upon commitment. Like you, women have to be with someone that they feel safe with, that they feel like is not just gonna bail mm -hmm. um, and that they feel like sees them and is like present with them. Like, I think women really need like a deep level of presence, like David Data talks about. That in and of itself is a commitment. And I don't think it's a skill set that a lot of people have these days because everyone's distracted. Everyone's like on their phones looking for the next like shiny, brightest object. And so uh, I think this is a really big issue for women. And a lot of my clients are either like, they've either feel really grateful because they're in a secure relationship with someone who's helping them heal or they're intentionally single because it stresses them out to be with someone that can't help them heal. I obviously that's like not everyone, but that's like, that seems to be the category of a lot of the women that come to work with me because women that work, you know, come to do the work that we're doing. They tend to be intentional. Like they want to work on their health. Like it's a specific kind of woman that right. comes that's a health coach and a nutritionist to do this work. And, um, and I think there's a lot of women out there that are just uh, confused. Like they're on birth control. They're having casual sex. Um, you know, they get insecurely attached to someone that doesn't treat them well. It affects their, their health. It affects how they feed themselves, how well they care for themselves. And also like their perceived value, you know, again, like to go back to this value hierarchy, if you wanted to like rate, there's, there is actually like a rating system that some people apply. I don't think that everyone uses it consciously, but like, you've probably seen these things, these memes floating around on Instagram. He's a 10, but yes. <laughs> I actually created one. I haven't like posted it yet, but I created one just because it was fun. I thought it would be fun, but I was like, that's a very like superficial way of approaching humans. Um, but there is actually like a rating system. And a lot of, I have like some male engineering friends that like talk about it. Like it's, they actually like, like are cognizant of it when they're dating. And what I think, um, what I would love to support women with, and what I think is really important is helping women understand that like this kind of more superficial idea of the rating system and, and of value in general, like status, money, appearance, um, that shit is not that important. Mm -hmm. Like 
to be a high value woman, woman, in my mind, it's like you, you want to heal yourselves. You want to understand your biology. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not just going to have casual unprotected sex with some random guy off the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, not because that's inherently immoral in my, in my standards, but because that that's not actually serving you like that's har- could potentially harm your health. And it also doesn't actually meet your needs for safety so that you can have really good connected sex. And so same thing with like taking control of your fertility and not outsourcing it, taking control of taking responsibility, I should say, for your well-being and not outsourcing it to pharmaceuticals or a crash diet or something. Like there's these different levels of like choosing to be a valuable woman that have nothing to do with like these very, I don't know, superficial and sometimes toxic metrics that we get taught to, to, um, to like place value in. And so I think it's really, really important for women because we are in this place where again, like at this point, women are the gatekeepers to sex and men are the gatekeepers to relationships. Like like that's where we're at right now in modern industrial society. And women often are not taught what it means to be a gatekeeper to sex, like why that's so important. We've got like really conservative views around morality and purity. And then we've got like really liberal views that are just like, you know, go on Tinder and have sex and that's, you know, so there's not really a lot of like nuance and understanding like how, who you choose to invest your energy in, to love, to to like sync your nervous system up with um, is actually like a health investment and it's going to, it's going to impact your health. And so I think that's just really, really important stuff for us to talk about and like understand really, really important stuff. Everything you just named. I'm like, wow. Like I've been wanting to have this conversation with someone for a very, very long time. I'm like, someone please talk to me about this stuff because these things are just spinning around in my mind, like all day. And I don't have anyone to talk to them about. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I love what you said about hunger, because I think a lot of the women that I see in practice, who aren't feeling well, have poor digestion, hormonal imbalances, don't have periods, fertility issues, et cetera. Um, Not saying this is the only factor, but I think that there is like a deeper hunger for something Mm -hmm. that they might not even be aware of yet. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's what's so beautiful about this journey. Like I had no idea there was like deep hungers and deep desires within me. I was just focused on trying to like feel better, right? And that's beautiful, but I just, I love being in this space. That's why I call this, like, it is a lifestyle, right? It's not just like, okay, give me a protocol and I feel better. No, this is about to change your fucking life. (laughs) Like in so many different ways, the, the more you spend time in this space, the more you get exposed to. And not that it's like culty or that you should never just go live your life and you should just keep learning, learning, learning. Like, obviously there's a time for learning and there's a time for like integrating and everything Mm. that you've learned. But, um, I just think it's really beautiful. All the places that this space has led me to like David data, masculine and feminine, and just like digging deeper into that space, because honestly, not having those two polarities within me or having like a healthy relationship between the two is kind of what also contributed to the health issues. Um, and having sex with people who were not um, serving me and my highest good for my health and my well-being, my womb. Um, yeah, yeah, all of it, it just, it makes a big difference. So I really hope this conversation inspired who it needed to. Um, I'm really curious. Go ahead. 
I was just going to, can I add one more little detail? Absolutely. I keep it little. <laughs> <I'm proposed. laughs> so the, 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 um, the approach that I take in this umbrella term pro-metabolic like bioenergetic that's, you know, a lot of, a lot more people are becoming aware of. So I've had so many women, like so many women either come to me because they've heard me in a podcast or consult with me and tell me that this work is deep, like that they thought that they had healed all of these things about their body, the body dysmorphia, or, um, you know, just feeling like they have to be 0% body fat or fix themselves, get rid of their symptoms. Um, a very masculine approach to, to healing and to body care. And then realizing once they took on this more pro-metabolic, like let's heal from the cells out, let's address the stress, let's address the, the nervous system piece. Um, they realized they have a lot more work to do and that it was actually a lot of their issues were hiding underneath control and rules. Yeah. So I think that there's so much depth here in the healing process that involves the food and the nourishment piece and the emotional and the energetic piece. And again, to go back to like why women need to differentiate themselves from men, like our health, we, we don't want to be 0% body fat. Like we don't want to look hot, like, like being taught as a young girl that, that, that the sole focus should be to, to seek hotness and to get validation for hotness instead of seeking beauty, like for all the things that means and getting, creating value around beauty. Those are two very different feelings and two very different paths that will lead us to different behaviors. And so this approach, you know, this like all-encompassing approach to, you know, improving a female metabolism is not the quick, the quick path to hotness. Yeah. Like you get to kind of see that path burn down. Like as you're doing this work, you realize like, that's not where it's at. Yeah. That's a, to burnout and to dissociation. Yep. And we need to train men to value the other, another path. Mm -hmm. So they're not no longer just seeking like little hot women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That needs to change. Yeah. And I honestly feel like this space is kind of like the, the end of the, the chasing, you know, like when I, when I first found pro metabolic, I was like, I feel like this is like freedom, like for once, like it finally felt like freedom. And then when I got, cause I had done my emotional work or I thought I like that was, I was starting it before I found pro-metabolic. And then I like, I kept making all these changes and I felt good, but then I just, I kept like being hit in the face by like how important emotional mm -hmm. work was on top of the, the pro-metabolic and, and nourishing your cells and everything. And what you just said is so beautiful because it's so right. Um, it's an all-encompassing approach and it just, it is so deep and mm -hmm. because it is so deep, it is so beautiful. Um, and so I find everyone who, who stumbles across the space and it has grown like tremendously. Um, sometimes I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Um, yeah, it, it's grown tremendously. And I really hope that everyone kind of receives this message and passes it along to someone who really needs it, that there is mm -hmm. healing there is healing, like true healing possible. And you don't have to do anything super crazy or trendy to yeah. feel good in your body. Because at the end of the day, I think that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, you may want to reach these superficial goals of like looking this way aesthetically or whatever, but mm -hmm. that's not truly what your heart wants. You no. know, feeling. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. 
That was a beautiful episode, Kimber. Thank you so much. I'm curious with all of, I feel like what you just said, I'm just like, whoa, what does this girl have in the works? What are you working on? Any projects? I mean, you mentioned some courses and eBooks and stuff. Yeah. So I have a um, comprehensive women's health course and it's super affordable and that's called habitually healthy. And it's kind of like you uh, do it, do it at your own pace. And, um, and you can find that I'll, I'll send you a link for that. And then I also have an ebook and I offer private coaching subscriptions to women. And that's currently, I'm in the process of moving my life. Like I'm moving back to Berkeley, California. So right now I'm not really working on projects. I'm just maintaining, you know, um, and then I'm sure I'll be doing more launches for my course, like in the next, you know, once I'm settled in the new year, in the fall and the new year. Um, but I also just love to hear from women. So like anyone who listens to this podcast, anyone who like is spoken to by anything that I said, I love feedback. I love connection with women who are going through, who have gone through similar things. I feel like we learn through communication, through stories. And so that's, um, yeah. So even if you don't feel called to work with me, if you feel called to share with me some aspect of your life that was touched by this podcast, then that's, I think, a success right there. We love that. And what's your Instagram handle again? Kim at Kimber Malden. Kimber Malden. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. We will link all of that in the show notes. Um, Thanks to everyone who listened until next time, guys. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If the episode resonated with you, feel free to share it with a friend and give the podcast a five-star review and rating as this allows us to grow and continue having incredible guests on the show. Thank you so much for your support until next time.